be seated. Um, after a break of many months, we are back in the Gospel of John and picking up in chapter 18, starting in verse 1. As I mentioned last time, I'm making good on my promise to bring back the Gospel of John uh, for this spring. However, um, not wanting to drop Second Peter, I'm moving that to the evening. And so, invite you back to continue uh, looking at chapter 2 as uh, considered tonight uh, Lot, Peter, and Jesus, and what they have to teach us about navigating difficult matters in this world. Let's uh, read, though, together from John chapter 18. I'd like to read to you starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, where he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received the detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Let's pray. Our Father, in even and especially in times of darkness and night when things seem like they cannot get much worse and the world seems to be coming undone, we all the more need to know that you are for us. Even when our faith is failing, we pray that we might more and more be confident that your faithfulness should never fail and that you also are the Savior of all those who, however imperfectly, have trusted in you. We come again to this passage and pray that our Lord Jesus might be exalted in our midst and in our hearts, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the most prevalent fears people have is that of losing control. So begins a recent article in Psychology Today magazine, not that I read such things, you know, but I do, I do Google searches before I preach, right? Uh, chronic sufferers, it says, keep themselves continually in a benighted uh, state of stress and anxiety. In fact, there was another article also out last fall that reports, quote, new research on mental health and psychological disorders suggests that the fear of loss of control may be at their root. The article is, could one factor 
explain all these psychological disorders. That is to say, you may be afraid of crowds or small spaces or spiders or spiders in small places in the middle of crowds. But what you're really afraid of, this research is saying, is not those things. What you're afraid of is that you will lose control. What happens when you can't keep it together? I think that we're all liable to uh, many fears, and uh, these fears are clearly fed in a world that, well, from politics to pandemics, often uh, feels like it's spinning out of control. Fear may well be a natural reaction, but fear is a great enemy to the Christian. Fear undermines our confidence in God's goodness. It quenches the joy of our souls, though it says that the, in the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear, we do find that it can sometimes go the other way, that fear can sometimes cast out perfect love. That is, fear can make us even wonder if, if God truly dwells in heaven or whether he really loves us. Someone cataloged 125, the, the 125 commands that Jesus gives in the Gospels. And the most frequently repeated of all, uh, 21 of the 125, is the Lord urging us not to fear or positively to take courage. So I think this says something about our need. We, we need to remember that we should not fear and that we have many reasons for confidence. All that and much more is in the passage before us. We return to the Gospel of John after several months away. When we left, we were in that holy place we call the upper room, hearing words of unsurpassed love and intimacy. And we heard Jesus praying for us, a beautiful window into the heart of Christ. But now, suddenly in chapter 18, it doesn't seem so suddenly because it was several months ago, of course, right? But in the, in the flow, you, we, we, we leave the blessed quiet of the upper room and immediately we are thrust into a very different environment indeed. Now we are thrust into the darkness of the Lord's betrayal and arrest and trial and scourging soon to follow. He will be crucified in the morning. And now all of a sudden seem, it seems that things are out of control. We, we are in the final hours of our Lord's life, hours that are packed with action and filled with significance. Probably, as one man says, this is the most meaningful day in the history of mankind, a day of drama and tension and horror. And throughout the book of John, we have been, we've been waiting for this moment. Time and again, Jesus has eluded their capture. Time and again, we have read, his hour had not come, his hour had not come. But now, at last, in the passage before us, the hour is at hand. For Jesus had come to teach to serve, to heal, to love. But Jesus came to die and to rise again supremely. From the very first, he was revealed to Israel, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what was true on the first is going to be true on the last day of his life. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loves them to the end. Now, my point to you today as we pick up this narrative and as we begin to follow the events 
is that in all these things, John wants us to know that Jesus is in control. This will be his, this is our first main point to you that we'll be considering what it means in a few minutes, but Jesus is in control. On this dark and fateful night, when the disciples all abandon or deny the Lord out of fear, John wants us to know that Jesus has it all under control. Even though his disciples did not have it under control, Jesus did. Um, we've considered before how John is a kind of companion volume to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That is to say, John, writing later, expects that you have read all of these other accounts, and he wants to have a kind of volume two. He's not going over the same ground for the most part. For example, only one of Christ's major miracles are reported uh, in, is reported in the Gospel of John from all the other Gospels and vice versa. John is telling you things that you didn't know. Or again, John didn't tell us in the upper room about the Lord's Supper being instituted that night, but he did want us to know that on that same night the Lord washed his disciples' feet. He's giving us another perspective to fill out our understanding of these events. And that's true here in the arrest of Jesus. Did you notice what was not said about the Garden of Gethsemane? John has not mentioned the prayers that Jesus made in agony while his disciples slept. Although he expects you to have read that, and he makes some reference in verse 11 to the cup that my Father has given me. He expects that you would have read elsewhere how Jesus had prayed, Oh, my Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. John doesn't mention the agony of the prayer and the kiss of Judas. All these bitter events that were part of our Lord's sufferings on our behalf. But he does want to show us some other things that happened on that evening and give us another perspective. He wants us to see here that even in the midst of all those sad events, Jesus was in control. This detachment comes to arrest Jesus with torches and weapons. And what do we read in verse 4? Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to him, what are you, what are you, said to them, what are you, whom are you seeking? So, Nothing is taking him by surprise. John wants us to know. He knew that it was coming. And when they come, he went forward. He was drinking the cup the Father had given him. He was fulfilling all that was written. He was even making good on his word to his disciples that none of them should be lost. Jesus is in control. And... Something else happened that we need to understand a little more. When, when, when Jesus asks them, whom are you seeking? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says to them, I am he, in my translation. And as soon as he says that, they draw, they draw back and they fall to the ground. What's, what's going on? Well, we have a King James, New King James New American Standard, one of those, 
you might note that the word he is actually in italics. That is to say, it was added to make a little more sense to English speakers. But all that Jesus said was, I am. And he said it in such a way. We've explained, I've explained this before, and I'll explain it again. But he said it in such a way as immediately to recall, certainly to all Jewish people, that this is what God himself had said to Moses. I, let me explain. When God told Moses that he was going to be leading the people to freedom, Moses, Mo, Moses says, well, when I come to the children of Israel, and they say, who is this God? What am I supposed to tell them? The God of your fathers has sent me to you. They're going to say, what's I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Before Abraham was, I am. And they take up stones to stone him. They realize what he is saying. They say that you've committed blasphemy. You're taking the name of Jehovah upon yourself. You, a man, are claiming to be God. Well, this is the name that Jesus here declares twice when they come to arrest him. And, and when they hear him say it, they fall back. And what's, what's going on there, you say? Was it simply the shock of, of these pious Jews that a man should stand before them and so boldly take God's sacred name on his lips in their presence? Or was there something more? Are we to understand that maybe there was some power that came out with that name that somehow made those men feel faint? I don't know. All we have is what's written. You'll have to ask the Lord when you see him. But the significance is clear. That as they come to arrest this man with their weapons and their torches, and he stands before them and says, I am... Not even the he, just I am. Suddenly they realize that something is not right. These soldiers imagine that they were going to be chasing down a fleeing peasant. But now instead they find themselves weak and confronted in the olive grove by a numinous commanding presence. That suddenly they realize, huh, we're not in control. He's in control. Okay. That the one who's standing before them, at least, is taking the name of the Lord of glory. And again, perhaps there's even some other power at work that's not mentioned. But in spite of those men who oppose Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And that's what John wants us to see. He is Lord in every situation, including here his own death. All the other attempts to capture him failed because his time was not at hand. But now he is going to take the cup that the Lord has given him, and he will drink it to the dregs for you and for me. He does his work according to his will. Our God reigns. The work is undercover. We don't understand how it works. But John wants us to see in the passage before us, nothing is happening apart from his knowledge and will. He knows that they are coming, he goes out to meet them. He declares boldly the name of God twice. The, dis the soldiers stagger. The disciples, well, Peter tries vainly to fight, 
and the rest are about to flee. But Jesus is in control. One of the more interesting reality television shows that came out was called Undercover Boss. I only saw one episode, but it was an interesting one. And um, uh, the, the plot of the show went like this. There was some boss of a company, usually a multimillionaire, right, who disguises himself as a, uh, a, a new hire uh, at the lowest level of the company, um, you know, some manual labor guy to cut up fish or move boxes or something like that, right? And I, I don't know how they hide the cameras, but they, but they have a bunch of cameras around, and none of the co-workers suspect that this is really the company's owner, right? They just think he's another worker. Well, um, the, the, the one that, uh, one that I had uh, seen focused on the owner of a produce company, he, uh, he tried to package lettuce that had come in from the fields, and, well, he wasn't very good, and he spilled most of the product, making it unsellable, right? And, to, you know, by all outward observations, the new guy is a total klutz with no future in the company, right? Um, well, of course, it turns out he owned the company, right? So, uh, so anyway, the, uh, the thing that makes the show entertaining is the fact that the viewer knows that things are not at all as they seem, that there's actually a complete reversal of what you would expect. And so we chuckle as we watch real workers become frustrated by a new hire who isn't very good. So I bring this up because there is a sense that John is giving us this undercover boss principle, that he's introducing to us all the things that are about to happen as Jesus goes before the the great Sanhedrin, the rulers of Israel, as he's called before the Roman governor, as he's brought before Pilate and so forth. Uh, Things are not as they seem. And the, 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 the dialogue will be picking this up as well, as Jesus does not act like your average prisoner. The temple officers and the soldiers who came to get the Lord that night, they thought they were just dealing with some troublemaker, perhaps. They thought they were in control of the situation, but they were wrong. Jesus was in control, you see. Well, for the rest of the time, I'd like us to consider what this means for us. I've got two, two main things I'd like to point out. The first is this, then as now... The rebels who oppose Jesus do not in any way thwart his lordship. Then, as now, the rebels who oppose Jesus do not in any way thwart his lordship. In some years past, there's been this terrible argument about who killed Jesus, you might know from church history, right? Gentiles, who don't know the Bible too well, have sought to blame the Jews for everything, fueling the fires of anti-Semitism. The Jews, for their part, blamed the Gentiles, for it was a Roman execution. But sometimes the argument, as I say, got out of hand and fueled either anti-Semitic or anti-Christian feeling. Um, Surely this misses the point. Jesus said earlier, and John presents it this way, no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down and power to take it up. This command I receive from my Father. He's come to give his life for you, O man. And this is what the passage assures us from the very first. Later in the book of Acts, when the church is being threatened, they gather for prayer. 
And they say, Lord, you are God. You made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And you said by the mouth of your servant David, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and so forth? For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do, listen, whatever and your purpose determined before to be done. That's who killed Jesus. God gave his only begotten son. Christ received the command to lay down his life and to take it up. It's not a matter of blame or strife. It's a matter of wonder and humility. And that when bad things happen, we need to remember that this was not some one-off. It's not like this was the only time that God intervened. Oh, no. You know, when bad things happen, there are basically two main views among Christians. One is that God couldn't do anything about those events. Some say he doesn't even know the future and that he, nothing he could have done. Um, he hurts with you about what happened. He wishes it wouldn't have happened, but he can't do anything about it. He tries, uh, this tries to get God off the hook, right? The other view is that although God is in no way the author of evil, though, he, though God doesn't even tempt men to do evil, nevertheless, men cannot so much as move without his, at least, permission. In him we uh, not explained. He is able to govern things in such a particular way that although he, he nevertheless fulfills his will and brings all his promises to pass in a way that serves his glory and our good. So that Ephesians says, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, you know, some things are uh, done contrary to his moral will, of course. God tells people, don't kill, don't murder. Nevertheless, he allows things to happen for a time in order that uh, his other purposes may be fulfilled. Evildoers are going to be responsible for their sins. They will face judgment if they don't repent. But the evil deeds that people do do not in any way contradict God's good and loving purposes, which he fulfills sometimes even through such miserable acts, even through the murder of the Son of God. As Job affirmed, after all of his suffering which was caused by Satan, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Nobody can thwart God from fulfilling his promises. And he is, therefore, uh, in control. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet the Lord has not decreed it, he asks in Lamentations. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High? that things both come. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the purpose of the Lord, it will be established. And so we see that not just by a mere permission, but somehow by a governing and directing and allowing certain things to happen, God, who is not the author of sin, allows certain things to happen to fulfill his purposes and promises to you and me. And therefore, all things must serve our good. So we see the Jews who opposed Jesus here uh, because of their spiritual pride. We see Judas the hypocrite who seemed to follow Jesus, but all the while harbored this secret evil that led to his downfall. 
we find perhaps the secular powers adding to their deeds, perhaps a reference here to Roman soldiers as well. But in any case, the rebels who oppose Jesus do not in any way thwart his lordship. And when you see the evil in the world today and the latest Islamic terrorists boasting of their gruesome conquests, as we see terrible things in the world and the world seem to be going out of control and we think, where is God in all of this? Is God's side losing the battle? We are reminded that all things are in the hand of the one who died for us. He is made head over all things for the church, we read. Principalities and powers. Then as now, the rebels who oppose Jesus do not in any way thwart his lordship. Secondly, then as now, the disciples who fail him are still under his saving care. Then as now, the disciples who fail him are still under his saving care. After the soldiers recover themselves and ask a second time, and Jesus says, I told you that I am. If you seek me, let these go their way. John adds, this was to fulfill the word that he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost none. Nevertheless, in typical fashion, Peter impetuously draws his sword and wildly uh, swings at Malchus's head. I, don't, I shouldn't say wildly. Probably a pretty, pretty accurate shot. He's probably trying to take his head off. And, and Malchus manages to only get his ear off with a duck, right? As Luke reminds us, not John here. Um, P- Peter simply points out that uh, Peter takes off the servant of the high priest's ear. And uh, John, who knows the high priest family, knows this man's name is Malchus, recording for us uh, another eyewitness of these events, hopefully because in the Lord's mercy, Malchus later was tugging on his ear. He said, what was I doing <laughs> trying to arrest this man? What an idiot I am. I need to be worshiping this man, right? Okay, so, all right. Well, while Peter was loyal and committed enough to try to defend Jesus against hopeless odds, his action stemmed from a misunderstanding of God's purposes. He He didn't do the right thing, and he is mildly rebuked by Jesus. Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. I've got to drink the cup the Lord has given. Peter had not understood this the whole time. He had been trying to talk Jesus out of the cross. Never, Lord, never let this be to you, right? Peter, in so many ways, had been working against God's purposes for the cross. Nevertheless, despite his ongoing failures and misunderstandings, the Lord's intervention here to let not only the other disciples, but Peter also go, shows that despite our weaknesses and failures, Jesus nevertheless has promised to keep all those that the Father has given and lose not one. He lays down his life on our behalf and he frees us from our sins and having saved us, he keeps us. We might have a weak grip 
we might misunderstand. We might disappoint the Lord. We might be working against his purposes so far as he's concerned when we do stupid and impetuous things. Did you know that his promise toward you still holds? His sheep will never perish. This is not the last big mistake that Peter was to make, not even that very night. The Lord knew it all. You have other big ones coming, no doubt, in your life. The Lord knows. His sheep shall never perish. Then, as now, the disciples who fail him are still under his saving care. And even, as on this occasion, when we fail him terribly, he has still promised not only to keep us, but to restore us and to use us, as he did with Peter and the others who abandoned him that night. They could not thwart his loving, saving care. So these are the things that I wanted to point out from this passage as we get back to study the Gospel of John as we remember again what uh, is, is taking place. Jesus is in control. The rebels who oppose him cannot in any way thwart his lordship. The disciples who fail him are still under his loving care. All the, quest, all the great questions of your life, brother, in the most wonderful way can interrupt his good purpose, no failure on your part will take you out of his hand for all those whom the Father has given, he will keep. Like Peter, where there may be doozies, he may have to, that very night, weep out in the courtyard for his profound failure of trust and courage. The Lord will restore him yet and so it is that we have nothing ultimately to fear. The great fear that we have that is perhaps the root of all these other neuroses, I don't know, is that things are out of control. We may be out of control. Our lives out of control. A fear that quenches our soul's ardor drains it dry of joy. When fear controls our life, then safety becomes a kind of God, right? Whatever is determining, controlling your life is your God. And if safety is your God, I tell you that safety worshipers will not do anything that is great. Can safety worshipers do anything great? No. Do they attempt great things for God? No. Do phobias put a spring in your step? They do not. Will this cowering, this fear, make us better people somehow? No, there's a high cost to fear. A cost that we need to stop paying. For the God who has given his only begotten son for us, right, will also with him freely give us all things. And therefore we are told, do not fear. There is a high cost to fear that we need to stop paying. The world, for its part, seems to want us to pay more and more. You know, when the federal income tax was signed, saying, quote, if we allow this, probably he was laughed down as well. 
We can't allow this fear. Refuse. Now, I know everyone's afraid of something or someone. Maybe you're afraid of being criticized or unpopular or getting sick or being alone, losing a loved one, letting down your friends or upsetting your enemies. Many young people in particular are afraid of their friends. Did you know that? Afraid of their friends? You say, what do, what do you mean? Well, you remember that impressive man who became the first king of Israel, King Saul? What was his great downfall? Well, he said, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Loved him, that were thrilled with him, that asked for him. Though here's the most powerful ruler in the nation who literally stood head and shoulders above everyone else. And he can't obey God because he's worried about what his friends think of him. Saul wasn't afraid of his enemies. He was afraid of his his friends. And this is how foolish fear gets us, right? This is the foolishness of everyone who fears because they've forgotten God. In America, we are facing many fears right now. I think many people are even praying to a God that they hope will bless them. God bless America. Uh, A blessing that somehow can come perhaps without repentance, they think. A God that we can use rather than a God we must obey. A God that is, in short, not to be feared, but used as an idol. If you're trusting such an idol, I, I hope that your God fails you terribly. And sooner rather than later, you come to read the real God that I'm telling you about today. To fear him, Jesus says, who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Now that's someone to fear. Fear of judgment will never save anyone. And it's an unworthy motive even to become a Christian. But fear is the beginning of wisdom for somebody who's trusting in a lie. Trusting in a God who's a God of one's own making, who's not able to do any good or deliver anyone. Because only the true God is strong enough to judge the world, as we read earlier, but also gracious enough to forgive in Jesus all who come to him and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A God who becomes man and goes to a cross to free you from your sin. And then, once you have that confidence perfect love can cast out the rest of those fears. And this fear is able to free you from every other weak and unworthy fear that the world throws at you. Because now you know the God who reigns, who rules, who does according to his will, as we prayed earlier, in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or even say to him, what have you done? The God who holds your breath in his hands. This is the God that we come to. After the rest, I say we must make it our purpose daily to overcome every craven earthly fear by resting in our Savior's promises and our Father's providence. He spent all that time in the upper room preparing his disciples for this very moment, giving them encouragements, words of comfort, promises, I will be with you. (laughs) There's still 
walking out, as it were, and, and, and everything's changed. And this is just the human condition, right? And how foolish we are. And how much, dear friends, we realize that, that we will never be f- free from our fears. But when we fear, we can call forth faith. We can refuse anxious thoughts. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? Why so disquieted within me? Hope in God. And we can no longer think and act as though our lives were not in the hands of our loving Heavenly Father, that Christ has not bought us, and that all things that take place in this world somehow fulfill His holy will. And Jesus says, Do not seek, therefore, what you should eat or what you should drink, or have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock. Do not fear, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so we see that we are to rest in God's provision of strength for the day, rest in the simple confidence that tomorrow won't be more than we can bear, that though we don't have it under control, He does. His compassions, they fail not. And they are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, whenever we are afraid, as it's written, we will trust in you. And we thank you for so glorious a Redeemer that none who trust in him should be ever, ever be put to shame. Perhaps there's some who have not trusted in you this day, but need to begin this very hour at the cross of Jesus, whom you did not spare but offered him up for us all, assuring us that in him you will give us all things. Well, we pray that from now and from this moment, Father, that you would have glory in yet another life, that another one who looks to you should find no more fear, no more shame. Worldly anxiety and burdens fall off. We would live in the daily trust and confidence of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We pray for the one who has been perhaps more like the rebels than the disciples, those who uh, came and opposed Jesus, 